Hello. I've come to make this recording um, based on my personal thoughts when it comes to the understandings and assertions of a specific person um, who is a public figure. And typically I shy away from a lot of uh, controversial subjects. And by controversial, I don't mean actual controversial. I just mean in the sense of um, something that may or may not be specific to a, to a group of people. And um, that's why uh, I've tried to make it as um, both-sided as possible. So I'll try to be a little bit objective when I talk about this. But um, it regards a certain theologian of the Christian faith, um, C.S. Lewis, the writer and theologian, most famously known for um, when it comes to his Christian work, it comes to uh, talking about um, his way of describing his theology in the book Mere Christianity. And also he's famous for, of course, his um, uh, children's series, um, The Chronicles of Narnia. But I'm here mostly to talk about specifically um, his reasoning when it comes to doctrine. Now, if you are not necessarily a Christian and you are listening to this recording, I apologize if uh, in advance if I use anything, any terms or terminology that is specific to the Christian religion, um, because it is my faith that I do follow. But at the same time, um, I ask you to uh, give me a bit of slack in that sense, just because um, I am talking mostly to a Christian audience when I discuss this. So what I really want to get down to, by the way, um, let me just let y'all know, there may be about eight to nine minutes of introduction to why I'm making this recording, so if you want to clear ahead of all of this and get to the beef, then you can do that, but if you would like to hear the reasoning behind why I'm doing this, then continue by all means. Um, the reason why I'm bringing up this whole thing when it comes to uh, C.S. Lewis and his doctrinal teaching um, is because a large amount of years ago I was invited to a book study regarding the screw tape letters and I've read that um, book twice I've enjoyed it because there, there aren't too many things that I disagree with it in well, the specific letters that he writes in that but I do mention disagree, and that's really the reason, well, there are multiple reasons why I'm making this, why, why I'm talking about this, but um, that's one of the larger reasons, um, because there are quite a few things that I disagree with in the types of writings that I've read over time of his. But I'll just make a caveat first. C.S. Lewis, by the way, is a wonderful writer, and he's drawn beautiful pictures surrounding the Christian religion, that I've read in the past, and I have nothing but honor for such a man who's uh, put an ex sort of an intellectual stimuli around Christianity for all this time. Because for a long time, Christianity, uh, especially in the light of the rise of secularism during the 40s, 50s, 60s, 
I would say even earlier than that a little bit, but um, Christianity was considered and still in some ways is considered a belief system of ameners, as I like to call them, where basically people who just say amen to everything. But what I'm saying is uh, I do enjoy a lot of what he says. And again, he's a wonderful writer. He's a wonderful speaker as well. He, he's got, he, it's just that there are these fundamentals that he teaches throughout his different writings and things, as well as, well, you could say mere Christianity, the book. It's not actually a series of writings. It was actually a radio program where he did a bunch of recordings on his theological musings that he had, and then he put it into book form later. And he did add additions to it, but again, it was a series of radio recordings that he made. But the thing about C.S. Lewis, although I don't, I don't want to um, in any way make it construed that I think he was wrong, quote-unquote, because that might be the case, that might seem the case when I get through this lecture, but I just want to make it clear that I have nothing but respect for him. And I think, but I just, in, in addition to that, in saying that I have respect for him, I think that there are some serious, serious issues that should be addressed about what he has to say about certain things in the Christian faith. Again, this is directed towards Christians, so they would be, Christians would probably be much more um, enthused about what I have to say. Now, I understand that the heart of C.S. Lewis's teachings was to better equip a Christian. I understand that the heart behind a lot of things that he has written is not meant to give a picture of doctrine to the Christian, but rather show him the true heart of God. I understand that. I understand that looking into details surrounding a theologian specifically doesn't necessarily get to the heart of things. But I want to let people know that there are certain things to watch out for when it comes to excuse me, when it comes to Lewis, and to take a little bit more care when reading, not just simply gobble up everything he says. So to clarify what I mean by writings, when I say when I'm talking about his writings, I've met, I've read many of C.S. Lewis's works, and uh, these include the Narnia series, The Great Divorce, Mere Christianity, The Problem of Pain, the Screwtape Letters, of course, um, Surprised by Joy, um, and then there are other things that I've written, including things that are called Letters to of C.S. Lewis, um, and Reflections is another one. But that's the extent. I've, I've read quite a few of his works, some of them twice or more. So I do feel like I have somewhat of an educated say on what he has to say. So I'm not just saying things based on personal opinion of certain quotes, or you can probably imagine lots of people, for example, taking certain things of people, taking a little snippet or a sound bite or something, and skimming and scanning through things that have been written. No, I'm not doing that. I've actually taken in a lot of what he's had to say, which is why I make the point that he is a brilliant man. And a lot of what he's had to say is very good. But there's some of it that kind of, in my mind, personally cancels out some of what he says just because of its stark contrast to what is biblical teaching. Now, I've had time to look through the different works that I've gotten written down, the quotations that I'll be mentioning throughout, so it'll be easier for me to get right to them. And if you've had um, any questions regarding this, then, uh, well, I'm sure there are places out there that can probably answer what I've had to say about this, but again, this is what I've found.
Um, I'm not trying to hide anything. I have nothing to hide. But for the sake of simplicity and time, I've taken down to write down the quotes that I'm going to mention, so I'll get right to them. So, after about 8 minutes and 15 seconds, <laughs> um, I guess I'll start by saying that I'd like to start with like sort of an introduction when it comes to the way that people look at belief systems, specifically in Christianity. So you can reason with any argument, right? That religion essentially differs from person to person. Beliefs, doctrine, all that varies. But no one can really dictate every detail of a belief with such precision that any minor contrast to the original should be considered heresy, quote-unquote, right? So you can't really make that distinction among any specific person and say, well, he's a Catholic, so he must believe everything the Catechism says. You can't say that. Because I've come across a lot of Catholic people that don't necessarily agree with a lot of things the Catechism has to say. And again, that was me coming across certain people. Other people may have had different experiences, but I'm sure it makes it's a reasonable assumption to make that there are many Catholics out there that don't necessarily believe everything that the Catechism has to say. So my point is everyone's different. People are going to believe what they believe. And with Christians, you can't say a proclaimed Christian isn't a Christian because his theology is different than your own. But the difference with C.S. Lewis is how much of an impact he's made, so much so that now we have many, many Christians who read through his books, and a lot of them, I would say, would turn a blind eye to something within if it isn't right. And I've seen this a lot. and Or they'll try to justify whatever the discrepancy because, well, like, he can't possibly mean that. But like I've already said, you, you can have, you can say that anyone studying through his works you'll immediately note his brilliant mind, he was creative, very intuitive, very basically in touch with the human condition through the eyes of a Christian. And also as a non-Christian, because he wasn't a Christian all the time. But again, if you carefully examine what he's had to say, you'll notice there are very apparent discrepancies between his teachings and what the Bible dictates as truth concerning major points in Christian doctrine. But where did these discrepancies start? What's the origin story? And naturally, with any origin story, when it comes to discrepancies in a religion, how was C.S. Lewis converted to Christianity? And immediately, right there, it gets interesting when you read about what happened to him. And I've read about it in the book that he wrote, Surprised by Joy. The whole book title is Surprised by Joy, The Shape of My Early Life. And that's basically how he describes his Christian walk started. Now, when he became a theist, and by theist I mean he believed in God, he didn't necessarily believe in Jesus necessarily as the Son of God. He just, he was just a theist. He described his conversion sort of as delving into his own logic surrounding the meaning of religion. So when he attended church, it was kind of like he was trying to show the world that he now believed in God. Um, and the reason why he wanted to show the world was really because he had previously considered, he was previously considered by many people who knew him as a self-proclaimed atheist. 
You'll find all this in his book, Surprised by Joy. But he was attending church. But that wasn't really the primary factor in turning towards Christianity. He just did it so everyone he could let everyone know I'm a believer in God now. Lowercase g, God. But that was, his ultimate, that was just his ultimate goal in continuously attending. And he was first led to start attending due to numerous discussions he had with his friends, including specifically um, Owen Barfield, who was a famous author of the time, and also one of the Inklings. The Inklings being a group of three people who often hung around eat with each other and talked about various um, theological things, writings that they were doing, all kinds of stuff. And those Inklings included Owen Barfield and C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, in case no one knows about that. And Owen Barfield, who led him to, who led Lewis to start, first starting, first start going to church, was actually an atheist at the time. He also later turned Christian, by the way. But anyway, through the process, C.S. Lewis said that he tried to find where religion had matured, according to what he said. And he said in his book, Surprised by Joy, there's a quote, Where has religion reached its true maturity? Where, if anywhere, have the hints of all paganism been fulfilled? End quote. And then he later goes on, quote, Paganism had only been the childhood of religion, or only a prophetic dream. Where was the thing full grown? Or where was the awakening? End quote. And then he continues again, quote, there were really only two answers possible, either in Hinduism or in Christianity. End quote. So this right here, this here is like the focal point to his book, Surprised by Joy. So for Lewis, it seemed like Christianity was more of an intellectual discovery than an actual conversion. Like when he says, where was the thing full grown? And you can read into his thoughts, you could argue, maybe he meant... Maybe he considered Hinduism as an equally matured belief as Christianity. And I understand that it's up to all of us to sort of make that decision whether or not he actually meant that by what he said. But again, as I searched through the context, when I read this book, and later the story surrounding his ultimate turn to Jesus, by the way, that was a profound read. But I found no indication through reading of another interpretation to put on his Hindu-Christian comparison. But again, it isn't hard to assume, at least to me, that such a thought process for the average Christian convert is undoubtedly uncommon. And some of us will say, well, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking about different religions, uh, I was thinking about uh, Christianity, that just seemed true, right? But this is a very different type of conversion that we're talking about here. We're talking about somebody who is actually trying to choose whether or not which religion was more mature. And like I said, back to the intellectual discovery part, it was more like he was just accepting a theory as opposed to accepting and choosing to follow a belief system. And I'd go further to say that this very thinly borders on downright rare when it comes to conversions in general to the Christian faith. Now, maybe he was just doing some intellectual juggling, I don't know. But, nevertheless, 
I would say it is very rare to think the way he did. But it is what it is. But he did ponder a lot deeper about the meaning of religion throughout his time as a theist. And according to his entire spiritual journey, he explained further in the same book, Surprised by Joy, that Christianity was, of course, indeed the most likely candidate in his mind. And this takes into account all the religious discussions he had with his friends, had mostly to do with it, also to his church going. By the way, I didn't mention this. Um, his church going was to a Christian church. It wasn't just to anywhere. But ultimately, his Christian turn, I would say, came surprisingly with, without much thought at all. And he said in the book, Surprised by Joy, he said, quote, I know very well when, but hardly how the final step was taken. I was driven to Whipsnade one sunny morning. When I set out, I did not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and when we reached the zoo, I did. Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought. End quote. So to the Christian, let's praise God, right? But I would say considering what he's written about it, there's a proper way to look at this, because his, con his conversion was centered around accepting Jesus as God. That's the doctrine of incarnation. That's two steps forward. But what is that actually saying here? Is that what defines a Christian? That's my question. Is someone merely saved by believing that Jesus is God? Because then, to a Christian, it'll be interesting to note that in the Bible, in James 2.19, it says, You believe that there is one God. You do well. The devils also believe and tremble, end quote. So according to that passage, believing that Jesus is God is irrelevant since the devils or demons believe it as well. That's one step back. So for example, Satan knows, according to Christianity, Satan knows that Jesus is God. That's, that's pretty obvious to him. He understands that. So according to Christian belief, that, that's just information to the Christian. That's like if an engineer came to terms with the fact that electricity exists. That's not even step one. That's, that's prerequisite. So we know this. So what I'm trying to say here is that knowledge of the truth for the Christian doesn't necessarily translate to being a Christian. And according to various passages all throughout the Pauline epistles, we get, a, again, a clear picture about what really defines someone as becoming an actual Christian. And that is the four steps, I would say, in my understanding of it, is to be a Christian, that means to accept Jesus as the savior of the world, and as well as one's personal savior, asking for forgiveness of sins in his name, believing on him and his teachings, and following him. Those are the four essential requirements but he didn't see it that way, because at the time, he just, again, believed that Jesus was God. And in light of this, there's another fundamental concept that I think should be very closely considered, and that's the act of being born again. The spiritual act of being born again, according to Christianity. And most Christians that I've heard of, maybe there are others, most Christians that I've known see this as the spiritual rebirth of a person in Christ. And this signifies the beginning of eternal salvation. 
And you can find info on that in John 3, verses 5 through 8, verse 15. And so when describing this, C.S. Lewis in his Letters to Malcolm, um, by the way, Letters to Malcolm is a collection of letters written to a fictional friend named Malcolm. There's no Malcolm, but again, this is just something he wrote. It's basically musings that he had. But he went off on something that I would say shed light on what he thought born again meant, the term born again. And he said, quote, Ye must be born again. Till then, we have duty, morality, the law, a schoolmaster, as St. Paul says. End quote. And then he later goes on, quote, But the school days, please God, are numbered. End quote. So the very words, till then, where he says, ye must be born again, till then, etc., etc. Till then illustrates how Lewis never didn't necessarily believe that being born again was an act, actually, but rather as a process to him. Because if the Christian has duty and morality and the law to follow until that time, when we've completed being born again, then he doesn't necessarily have to declare that such an act was ever experienced. And he never does, interestingly, interestingly enough. So the words till then illustrate this point. Again, um, you might be thinking right now, well, you're just taking two little words and some kind of quote here. You think that's what he meant. You know, let's, let's um, step back for a second. I'll give another example. In Mere Christianity, he describes the process more thoroughly and he says that Christians who try their very hardest to follow God have begun have already begun to be saved like he's not even talking about them as if they're saved that they've just started so as far as this may be related to spiritual growth I've thought about this it may be related to spiritual growth if you think first on it but Again, there are various points throughout the New Testament where spiritual growth specifically is talked about and encouraged. Ephesians 4, 14 through 15, 2 Peter 3, 18. But the act of being born again is never mentioned to or even alluded in being directly related or meaning the same thing as the act of spiritual growth. There's no indication in the Bible, as far as I'm aware, that being born again is a process that one goes through in life. There's no example of this. But that's what he thought what born again meant. Now, again, this may not seem like a lot. And this is, this is only a small detail of Christian belief. And it doesn't shake anyone's view. But what I'm really doing now is getting you ready so this is a progression. I'm, I'm mentioning this aspect of what C.S. Lewis thought because it leads to places, and I would say, if I could be bold, to foreboding ideas. Let me explain. One of the ideas he actually talked about was salvation by works. So obviously, if be becoming born again is something to attain over time, then being a Christian must be maintained. And so you get the idea of this concept in his book, Mere Christianity, when he wrote, quote, A Christian can lose the Christ life which has been put into him, and he has to make efforts to keep it. 
end quote. And Lewis had actually previously characterized this concept in the screw tape letters, um, and he's talking as screw tape, um, and he says, quote, in the book, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. Well, there's no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn into the enemy's camp and are now with us. End quote. Now, this implies that Christians are able to turn non-Christian after becoming saved. And this is why I want to bring the concept in of the Book of Life, which is primarily talked about in Revelation, somewhat in the Psalms, but when it's mentioned in the Psalms, it's mentioned as a prayer to God, and not necessarily what the Book of Life actually is. And again, um, I want to stop for a second and say, I apologize if any of this sort of Christianese lingo is turning a a non-understanding ear uh, to be like, what are you talking about there? But again, um, just mentioning that this is this recording is meant more towards to be um, more geared towards the Christian faith as opposed to people who are not within that faith. But again, bear with me as I go on. But I believe according to Christianity, that the book of life is a book. Not necessarily an actual literal book that anyone holds, essentially. It resembles the construct of a book. It has information. It's not physical. It's more of a record that exists for us, not necessarily for God, obviously. But in this book, there are names written from the foundation of the world. This is mentioned many times. Revealing who will and who will not enter heaven according to Revelation 17, 8. But notice I use the word reveal, not decide. So I'm not preaching Calvin's predestination. No. God just knows. He doesn't necessarily decide. But the names in this book of life thing have been written there ever since the beginning of time by implication. So that means that there is no possibility of losing the said faith of Christianity let alone trying to make efforts to keep that faith, as said in the screw tape letters. But that being said, Paul also taught against this concept in Acts 15.11, where he says, But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved, even as they. End quote. So according to this, works have nothing to do with salvation and are certainly not needed to maintain it. But we are saved... Through grace, not works, according to Christianity. We may do works to further our treasures in heaven and to continuously work to be Christians that are ambassadors of Christ, thereby maybe showing and not simply telling that Jesus isn't this really nice thing. But anyway, we've got Lewis here, who further comments on the subject in Mere Christianity, again. And he says that there are a great number of people, quote, slowly ceasing to be Christians, end quote. And he says this near the end of the book where he talks about clergymen slowly ceasing to be Christ-like. But if you look at Romans 5.10, Paul tells us, quote, we shall be saved by Jesus' life when reconciled through him, end quote. And so tying this scripture to the one in Revelation, 
in a way, supports the traditional teaching that all true Christians are saved eternally. And so if some person's name is written in the book of life, that person is saved, quote-unquote. But here's the thing. No one really has any idea of who is and who isn't. So I'll give an example. Um, if anyone is familiar with the show from the late 90s, early 2000s called That's So Raven on the Disney Channel, uh, there's the theme song in it at the beginning that plays. It says, uh, somewhere in the lyrics, it says, It's the future I can see. That's so raven. Yeah, it's the future I can see. And notice the words, it's the future I can see. Not dictate, not control, since she can know the future, but that doesn't have anything to do with anyone's free will, right? And you can see this throughout every episode where she's just, she sees the future. And she tries to make a change, or she tries to, um, or maybe she just doesn't worry about something because she knows the future. But then it turns out that the future wasn't exactly the way that she thought she, she knew it would be when she had the vision. So basically, the point is she doesn't control anyone by knowing something. She just knows, and that's it. She can't change it. But here's the thing. The fact remains that going back to the Christian aspect of things. The scriptures show that once someone is truly saved, they aren't ever going to become non-Christian. Now, faltering away from the faith is a definite possibility. I agree, no question. But the person will eventually be a prodigal son type figure and come back to the faith because their name is written in the book of life. Salvation was never lost. But anyway, even to that point, anybody would naturally ask, well, who are we to decide who really is saved and who isn't? Well, that's my point. We're not. We don't know what's in the book of life. We don't know. But God does. But who is he to tell us? And again, just because he knows who is written doesn't mean he decided it. He just knew. Because he knows the future. Which seems kind of a sensible way to look at it to me. But Lewis didn't stop there. He never supported the notion of retaining faith. He thinks that we can lose it, and we can become non-Christian, and we can go to hell after truly accepting Christ. Or not exactly hell, but I'll explain that in a second. So through all of that, he, go, he went further, and he delved more deeper into issues that focused mainly on Protestantism. Because throughout his life, he continuously leaned more and more towards the Catholic side of things. And he was, he was, because he was born and raised in sort of a Church of England environment. He became atheist after that, and then he became Christian again. But he wasn't ever officially declared a Catholic per se. But if you look at a lot of his letters, you'll see what I mean. Like he, he believed quite a few things that are very specific to Catholicism. He believed in purgatory, he went to Mass, he took the Eucharist, prayed for the dead, um, regularly went to a priest for confession, um, he took the Sacrament of Extreme Unction in 1963. So he, he did have quite a few leanings for Catholicism, and all of those things that I mentioned are very specific Catholic beliefs and not Protestant beliefs. Protestants are actually, in a lot of ways, against a lot of those things that I've mentioned. But he had a lot, a lot of leanings towards Catholicism, and again, this led to a lot of his disagreement with Protestantism, particularly with 
one doctrine called justification by faith. Now, in case listeners aren't aware, justification by faith, the title states the idea, faith in Christ is the primary saving factor of a Christian. But the thing is, anyone could look at his conversion process and could argue, anyone could argue, that his conversion at the time was to anything but Christianity. And before I go on, everyone's yelling at me right now who are Christian. They're saying, well, you, oh my God, you think this guy's, you're insane. You, you don't think he, Lewis was a Christian? Now, I need, again, I, I need to make my point clear before I go on. I believe that C.S. Lewis was a Christian. I believe that. What I say later may look as if I'm questioning this fact, but I'm not really questioning that. I'm just pointing out that what you see throughout his life, his life, but the moment he says he converted to Christianity, I don't believe he was. I most certainly believe that he later became Christian, and a strong one as well, but just not at that time when he said he was. Because all he did at that time was accept that Jesus was God. That's all he did, or thought. He didn't repent of anything. He didn't accept Jesus as the only Savior. I'll get into details about that later. He didn't actually claim that he had this experience. With, again, Lewis, it was more of an intellectual discovery. He didn't become born again at that moment. He just talked about how he realized that something was true. Now, I'm not saying that people aren't saved through discovering truth. I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying he discovered the truth of a fact that something was clear to him, which, as we understand from uh, James in the Bible, that's not the same as conversion. So look at it this way. I can understand and regard the truth that some politician, based on his record, is a clean guy and who I can tr whom I could trust uh, to be the next president. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to vote for this person, or that I'll believe in this person, or that I'll campaign for his you know, like, so knowledge of the truth in this case and in the case of Christ means nothing. It's how you accept it that determines things. But Lewis knew this and even talks about this type of intellectual acceptance as nonsense in chapter 12 of book 3 of Mere Christianity itself. Because again, I'm, I'm sure that he truly did convert later in life as evidenced, but just not at this point in time. That's all I'm saying. So he never specified if salvation lay solely on God's grace. That's justification by faith. Instead, he, you could say, decided to invent a new method of becoming a Christian. And in Mere Christianity, he said, quote, We have not got to try to climb up into spiritual life by our own efforts. It has already come down into the human race. If we will only lay ourselves open to the one man in whom it is already in whom it is fully present and who in spite of being god is also a real man he will do it in us and for us remember what i said about good infection one of our own race has this new life if we get close to him we shall catch it from him End quote and I'm looking at this quote, this this part, 
when I'm reading, and I, I, I'm seeing a lot of discrepancy with Scripture specifically, almost as if he's trying to attack Christianity, or at least not necessarily Christianity specifically, more like he's being antagonistic towards Christian doctrine of how salvation works. And we can look at this quote and we can tie it back to how he was converted and see the connection, how this method of salvation is pretty much how he did it himself. And what he says here isn't necessarily based on anything scriptural or anything. He's just promoting what he did. Maybe he's doing it subconsciously, I don't know, but you can see where it ties in. He models his writing after his own conversion here and calls salvation a subjective change in the person as opposed to accepting Christ as the sole savior. But the thing is, though, accepting Christ does lead to change, but here he's saying that change leads to Christ, you see. And Lewis is saying that a person is not necessarily saved by perfect righteousness outside of himself, but by an infection based on inner experience, which he called new life, quote-unquote. So it's not Christ that leads to change, but change that leads to Christ. See what he does there? And if we can get close enough to Jesus, we can, quote, catch, unquote, this belief in him, like catching a cold, you could say. And I'll be frank, according to the Christian understanding of this method of conversion, this is nonsense, let alone not biblical. We've got conflict with Revelation, the verse in Revelation. We've got conflict with what Jesus states about salvation, what Paul says about salvation. On the same page, he wrote, quote, humanity is already saved in principle, end quote. But here's where I'm trying to logically process this, because if the entire state of humanity is already, is already saved with people only having to catch an infection to become a part of God's family, then why did Revelation state that there are only certain people written in the book of life? There are numerous passages throughout Revelation consistently bringing up book of life as being this be-all, end-all say about who will enter heaven. Revelation 13.8, Revelation 17.8, 20.15, talks about the book of life consistently. Talking book of life, book of life. doesn't make sense to assume that humanity is saved already, if going by the Bible. So I'm studying through mere Christianity, and I've read it three times myself, all the way through. Twice I've read it um, while I was taking extensive notes concerning his theology, and constantly, when I was reading through, I asked myself, where is this said in the Bible? Because most Christian theologians, if not all of them, would, I assume, label the Bible as the central facet to all of Christian teaching, the central facet. Because that's where Christians get what they believe, that's where they understand, ultimately. And if you want to understand what C.S. Lewis taught about Christianity, mere Christianity seems to be the primary source to find that out. So I'm looking, I'm studying throughout, and in the first half of mere Christianity, the first half, there is no reference to any scripture. And I'm thinking that's, that has to be a mistake. And so I read through the second half, and I find him quoting about two or three scriptures, but each scripture he alludes to, he doesn't even quote them. In fact, he doesn't even, he sort of just says stuff like, this is said in the Bible, basically. He doesn't, never gives a context, no reference, no chapter number, no verse number, 
not even anything like Book of Mark or whatever. Not even what book something's in. C.S. Lewis tended to more just claim a point he was making and then went on to explain what he thought was true. Now, I've been told maybe he did this on purpose. Maybe it was a point to illustrate how Christianity is not solely based in the Bible, that it has to do with our understanding of the Holy Spirit, how it works through Christians and in Christians, right? But because I understand now how this is, this is true that the Holy Spirit does do this according to Christianity, but the Bible is how Christians discern whether or not what is truth, ultimately, if Christians were to get something from the Holy Spirit, because how do they know that it's the Holy Spirit all the time? How do they know it's not something else? Maybe, according to them, Satan putting an idea in one's mind and making them think that it's true when it's not. Because this is so important, I think a lot of Christians miss. Christians need the Bible to give them a proper interpretation of what they perceive as truth in order to understand the Holy Spirit in turn. You can't just, no, you, can't, you have to have a base. That's why it's there. That's why Christians have the Bible. That's what it's for, to interpret truth. And again, back to my point. I understand that this book, Mere Christianity, it was a it was a series of transcription. It was a transcription of various broadcasts that he gave over the radio. He, he consistently he talked throughout. He was basically lecturing you, right? Like I'm like I'm doing right now, and he had notes and things, but that was the extent. But afterward, he wrote down and slightly added to his words once he put them down. But even then, he still didn't add any biblical reference anywhere. Why? And we'll answer that in a second. And I'll give you an example, for example. So, um, when Lewis said, uh, when I say that Lewis said stuff like, oh, he's talking about scripture, like he references back to the Bible, and he says, well, the Bible says this, you know, yada, yada, yada. Here's an example of that. He said, in Mere Christianity, he says, quote, He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. He said, in the Bible, that we were gods. And he is going to make good his words. If we let him, for we can prevent him if we choose, he will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess. A bright, stainless mirror, which reflects back to God perfectly, though, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said, end quote. So, <clears throat> when I came across this particular um, aspect <laughs> in mere Christianity, I was immediately confused, um, and I was, I was basically in my mind, I was thinking, where, where, where are you going there? Where did you go? But anyway, I quickly surmised that, oh, well, maybe he was referring to glorified bodies in heaven. So Philippians 3.21 talks about that. Just to give him the benefit of the doubt, I'm assuming that's what he meant, especially when he talked about creatures that can obey that command, right? But I do think his equating people with gods is a bit strange. Lowercase g, god. Gods was used in that. 
because the Bible never actually uses such language to describe people in heaven. He never talks about us as gods. He talks about us as sons of God, children of God, but never as gods particularly. And then he goes on in the quote that I just mentioned that he will, uh, that we will be just like him. So because obviously, if we were to be so perfectly reflecting as a bright stainless quote, bright stainless mirror which which reflects back to God perfectly, end quote. Because it's true, he says on a smaller scale, but again, no such scale detracts from what Lewis says what we will ultimately become, which will be like God, right? Isn't that a little strange? I would think it is. Because um, in Isaiah 14, 14, Lucifer says that he also wanted to be like the Most High. So are we supposed to, that God was just angry at Satan for the moment and afterward he changed his mind, admitting, well, yes, you can be like me. And then we have the process will be long and in parts very painful. Where is C.S. Lewis getting this exactly? So I'll shed some light on these oddities. Lewis did not believe that the Bible was the word of God, but rather carried the word of God, according to his writings in Reflections, page 111. But the Bible says that the word of God given to Christians was made into the flesh, Jesus. The language used in John is very clear. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. But he denied this doctrine, and Lewis asserted that it is, he said, quote, in letters of C.S. Lewis, he says, It is Christ himself, not the Bible, who is the true word of God. The Bible, read in the right spirit and with the guidance of good teachers, will bring us to him. End quote. But now we have a contradiction here. What, who should we believe? Should we believe Lewis's definition of Jesus? or what the Bible said Jesus was. If the Bible says that Jesus was the word, which was to be given to Christians in the flesh, then Lewis was wrong to say that the word of God was Jesus alone. Jesus supported scripture. He quoted it. He referenced back to Genesis as being a factual event, according to Matthew 19.4, Matthew 24.37-39. So if the Bible is not the word of God, that would mean one of two things, assuming lunacy is excluded. Either one, Jesus was lying when he supported the scriptures and referenced back to them as truth. Or number two, the writers of the Gospels were lying, misquoting Jesus. And these, as far as I know, are the two, two only possible conclusions that you could go towards if you go by Mr. Lewis's teaching. And if you go with number one, that would mean Jesus was not the Son of God because he sinned by preaching a false doctrine. And if you go with number two, that, that would mean that we could not trust anything the Gospels said. If the writers lied about one thing Jesus said, they could have lied about other things as, as well, and even lying about Jesus being the Son of God. So Lewis draws himself into a corner this way because neither can possibly be true if Jesus himself is God, according to Christianity. But he does say, Lewis did say that it carried the word of God, but that in the guidance of good teachers, a guru, he could, uh, uh, the guidance of good teachers can tell us where to look 
for the truth within. And this would imply that the Bible never speaks for itself, but only through interpreters. But again, he says, when we least expect it, however, we will truly know, quote, whether a particular passage is rightly translated or is myth. But of course, myth, especially chosen by God from among countless myths to carry a spiritual truth or history. End quote. Letters of C.S. Lewis. So from the quotations given, no one can really be certain what C.S. Lewis um, was talking about when he used the word inspiration, not to mention other various terms and phrases like born again, word of God, let alone holy scripture. Because Lewis didn't believe Bible, the Bible to be God's word. And because of that, it was no problem if he contradicted what Jesus was quoted to say because he could simply pass it off as something that the writers just made up. And at times, I would say that Lewis's speculations and assertions are so contrasting to the blatantly clear teachings of Scripture that it should become absurd to any Bible believer. And there's another um, aspect that he believed was not true, um, considering the total depravity of man. He said, quote, in The Problem of Pain, he says, I disbelieve that doctrine, partly on the logical ground that if our depravity were total, we should not know ourselves to be depraved, and partly because experience shows much good in human nature. End quote. But as we study the doctrine more in depth, we find that mm, Lewis was just confused about what that meant. He never truly understood the doctrine of man's total depravity, mainly because he thought it meant that men, man was bad, as bad as he could possibly be, and that those unredeemed could never accomplish any good, only evil. But he never really looked into what theologians meant. Non-Christians, according to Christianity, are capable of good acts all around, not to mention general recognition of good and evil. The term total depravity is a, is a term that describes one inner being. And according to this, people's hearts and minds are corrupted by sin. Any skeptic, of course, would look at that and they would say, oh, well, could you honestly say that a baby in all its innocence is a hell-bound creature? Well, the fact remains, first of all, that babies are exempt from hell simply because they don't understand right or wrong. They're incapable of sinning deliberately. But striking that, this is where the, the doctrine of total depravity is proven. Does a parent teach their child to lie or steal or cheat? No, they, they sort of just do it on their own. It grows on its own. That's what that means, total depravity. But he rejected that, and he also implied, by definition, I would say, that man is inherently good. And he mentioned that in The Problem of Pain, saying, quote, Divine goodness differs from ours. It differs from ours not as black, white and black, but as a perfect circle from a child's first attempt to draw a wheel. But when the child has learned to draw, it will know that the circle it then makes is what it was trying to make from the very beginning. End quote. 
So in other words, man can remove more and more badness from his life until there is none left. And this, again, sharply clarifies his statement mentioned before in Mere Christianity about salvation, about one having to make efforts to keep it. And this rejection of man's inherent badness didn't come alone, but along with a new teaching he, created, he presented in The Great Divorce. He said, quote, Hell is a state of mind. You never said a truer word. And every state of mind left to itself, every shutting up of the creature within the dungeon of, his own, of its own mind, is, in the end, hell. But heaven is not a state of mind. Heaven is reality itself. All that is fully real is heavenly. For all that can be shaken will be shaken, and only the unshakable remains. End quote. And it was presented as a story, The Great Divorce, but Lewis Lee used it as a way to break misconceptions about heaven and hell. He, he wrote in a letter to Arthur Greaves about this, and he attempted to describe his feelings on the issue. And he, he said he basically wasn't exactly sure what hell was. Instead, he kind of leaned towards the idea of a purely mental existent left alone to one's psychological horrors. He illustrated his views like this in uh, Letters of C.S. Lewis to Arthur. He said, quote, I wouldn't put the question in the form, do I believe in an actual hell? One's own mind is actual enough. End quote. And in light of this, we can logically assume that Lewis just believed that there was only heaven and no real hell. And this especially becomes very apparent when he illustrated the same concept in The Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle where at one point near the end of the novel, the dwarves enter this barn, and they are not able to see anything inside, but the protagonists, they see everything. They see the wonder of the new Narnia, which is heaven. But the dwarves were in, quote, hell, end quote, which was basically a state of mind where they thought they were just in complete darkness. The only reality was heaven. So since the biblical hell is non-existent and heaven is open to all since all humanity is saved and divine goodness can be attained over time, it doesn't come to any surprise that Lewis would venture to the next level, claiming that even a Buddhist could enter the Christian heaven. And in Mere Christianity, he says just this, quote, There are people in other religions who are being led by God's secret influence to concentrate on those parts of their religion which are in agreement with Christianity, and who thus belong to Christ without knowing it. For example, a Buddhist of goodwill may be led to concentrate more and more on the Buddhist teaching about mercy, and to leave in the background, though he might still say he believed, the Buddhist teaching on certain other points. End quote. This is a direct contradiction to scriptures like John 14.6, or even the widely known John 3.16, which I need not quote. Even people who are not Christian who are listening to this know what John 3.16 says. And so for obvious reasons, no one commonly finds anyone quoting C.S. Lewis on this in mere Christianity. But as far as he went to claim how the Bible contained retellings of pagan myths and further supporting the notion that those against Christianity could still enter heaven, you could be bold to refer to 
Lewis's most famous work as not mere Christianity, but as mere paganism, I would say. Because anyone could technically go to heaven if they truly believed that, you know, what they actually believed in their other religion was true, but it was a good truth. And I would say that this is, again, illustrated in the last battle, but before I go there, I'm just going to say um, there's there's another quote I have here um, in letters of C.S. Lewis. He thought, quote, that every prayer which is sincerely made even to a false god or to a very imperfectly conceived true god is accepted by the true god and that Christ saves many who do not think they know him, end quote. And in the last battle, um, there is a character named Emeth, and he's walking through heaven, and he encounters Aslan, the the god of Narnia, who's uh, he possesses the form of the lion. He's basically sort of the the overarching character that we know throughout the the series, the Chronicles of Narnia. This lion that is God, and he falls to his knees. Emeth does. And he's ready for death, and he admits that he is no son of thine, but a son of Tash, a false god. But Aslan answers that all service for Tash is accounted to himself, since, quote, No service which is vile can be done to me, and none which is not vile can be done to him. Therefore, if any man swear by Tash, and keep his oath for the oath's sake, it is by me that he is truly sworn, though he know it not, and it is I who reward him." End quote. And Lewis had once written in a letter that Aslan is in certain ways a representation of Jesus. Now, should Aslan represent Jesus, the ideas presented in the Narnia series should have anyone consider the seriousness of how much this contradicts Jesus' words in John. In John. Because, but according to Lewis, if hell is not real and unbelievers can enter heaven and the Bible is not the word of God, why not go a step further? And he does in a writing um, he made called The World's Last Night. Night, uh, N-I-G-H-T, not night, with a K. And I would say that C.S. Lewis effectively epitomized his arguments against the foundation of Christianity in that when he says that Jesus erred, we made a mistake. He said, quote, referring to Mark 13.30, That is certainly the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. The one exhibition of error and the one confession of ignorance. Mark 13.32, grow side by side that they stood thus in the mouth of Jesus himself and were not merely placed thus by the reporter, we surely need not doubt. The facts then are these, that Jesus professed himself in some sense ignorant and within a moment showed that he really was so." End quote. Now setting aside the fact that Lewis simply just misinterpreted Mark on both contextually and lexicon-wise, what's more alarming to me is the fact that Lewis reversed Jesus' statements on purpose to make his point. 
And I would say that denying the inerrancy of Christ is quite a leap from Christianity. And why would he claim that Jesus was the true word of God and yet deny Jesus' inerrancy? And in this light, Christians need to come to the conclusion that even the term word of God didn't necessarily mean it was completely trustworthy to, to C.S. Lewis. What does all this mean? I mentioned from the, the beginning when it came to things that people believe. And a lot of times there's a fine line between doctrine and cult. A cult refers to any belief system that has initially broken away from another's, another religion's origins concerning key fundamentals. And I would like to ask is C.S. Lewis... Clive Staples is his first name, first and middle name. Is C.S. Lewis really the man to follow concerning doctrine on Christianity, or has he, through his writings, invented a new type of Luisian cult? Christians have to consider his teachings. Were they all correct according to fundamental doctrine? Now, he's contributed many wonderful quotes, drawn wonderful pictures surrounding Christianity for contemplation. But when it comes to the bottom line, his main doctrine is in error if the Bible has anything to say. So I would say to Christians, before grabbing up books of his, like Mere Christianity, from the shelf, Christians have to consider, is Mere Christianity really about Mere Christianity? Does a series of lectures that he made really have one scripture reference? One real ounce of backup that didn't come purely from Lewis and Lewis alone. Now, I'm sure that there are many instances of such where he's read into issues correctly, but in light of all the teachings that Lewis imparted, Christians still must be careful to watch for things when they read, as well as what they recommend to others as food for the soul. <laughs>